0: And then uh, these guys will be glad to give you one. Dave, check those lights and make sure I've got everything on here I can. Alright, guess we might have to use this little baby. There we go. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Malachi. If you don't know where it is, go to Matthew and back up one. Most of you know that we have uh, home groups, small groups, that meet on Sunday night in homes and uh, uh, sometimes across the street in our rental space. We've also got one <clears throat> that meets on Wednesday nights. David, who's back there right now and does our sermon there every week, David leads that, David Hare, and they meet here in our building on Wednesday night. So if you can't make Sunday night. And you'd like to be in a small group. And they're doing some apologetic stuff. It's really good. Dave and I have talked about it a lot. And, and so it'd be. Even if you're in one Sunday night. And you'd like to be involved in one. Uh, learning stuff about apologetics. Fending faith. I think you'd really enjoy it. It's Wednesday night. Here in our building. Start at 6, 630. 6:30, so Wednesday nights, right here, David and Laurie and some other folks. So I think you would get a lot out of it. If, if, and again, I've had some people say I can't be there on Sunday night, but during the week, it's uh, be a good time to get together as believers. Wednesday night, 6:30. All right, everybody found Malachi? We began last week. to look at your <coughs> handout, <coughs> we began this series on the book of Malachi. We're going to be looking at it over the next few weeks and. It's an interesting book for a lot of reasons, and God led led me to Malachi for some personal reasons and some devotion stuff, and as I was finishing up the series we were doing on being free and what that really meant. And I was studying Malachi on a personal level. I just really felt like this was something God wanted me to share with you. If you'll notice, the title of the series is God's Messenger. That's what the name Malachi means. In Hebrew, it means messenger of God. And it's a fascinating book for a lot of reasons. We talked about some of this last week. We're not going to go back over all of that, but just a couple of things. One, it's the last message that we have from God for 400 years. There is the silent years between Malachi and the time of John the Baptist is about 400 years. And so the world did not have a prophet of God, did not have an oracle and a voice, a message from God, 400 years. If you think about it, 400 years is a long time. We think about it even our nation. We're not even close to being 400 years old. And so 400 years is a long period of time not to hear from God. And so what Malachi has to say is significant for a lot of reasons. But one of them is that it's the last message God has for us prior to John the Baptist coming on the scene. And what's interesting is that in Malachi, we're going to get into this in a few weeks, but you'll notice Jesus said, this is he, talking about John the Baptist. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. That Jesus is quoting Malachi. So Jesus is saying, Malachi was telling you about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist comes on the scene with two basic messages, which are in reality the same. But John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he's baptizing at the Jordan River. And his message is what? Anybody remember? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then he sees Jesus, and what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You repent. Repent. So you can be born again, and you can have your sin debt paid by the Lamb of God. So John the Baptist comes on the scene after 400 years and says, you know, as Jews, this whole, everything we've learned about the Lamb of God and and Exodus and the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant and all that we've been taught from generation to generation to generation, I'm here to tell you that this man you see coming, Jesus of Nazareth coming to me to be baptized, he's the answer. He's the fulfillment of every bit of that. When the death angel came under Pharaoh of Egypt and he passed over the houses with the blood on them, the Lamb of God was celebrated. Going forward, we still, as Jews, celebrate Passover. And then Paul writes in Corinthians, Jesus is our Passover. So John the Baptist was saying, this is he of whom we've waited. This is the Messiah. I love that song, Jesus, Messiah. Because what you're seeing... In the Old Testament, is God preparing history and the world for the coming Messiah. What you see in the New Testament is that he comes, and he has come. And the beauty for us as we apply the word of God is that God now says to us, it's your time, it's the church age. The New Testament calls it the last days, is that God has sent his son. Hebrews chapter 1 says, he's spoken to us in the past by the prophet. Now in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And the last days began at the first advent, we read about it in the gospel. The last days will end at the second advent when Jesus comes back. We read about it in Revelation and Jude and, and other places that he is coming back. And he's coming back as the judge. He came as the lamb, the Passover lamb. He's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the beautiful part for us is that we're right in the middle of the church age, also known as last days. And we don't know when those will end, but we do know that God has given us the incredible privilege and responsibility to say to the world, Jesus is the lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came, he died, he rose again, he ascended to the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for us, and he is coming back. I love John chapter 14. The last night Jesus is on earth, and he gathers his disciples together in that incredible upper room discourse. He begins in John 13 with these words, Let not your heart be troubled. Why did he say that? Because their hearts are troubled they did not want him to go away they wanted him to stay overthrow the romans set up the messianic kingdom and let's rock and roll and jesus kept saying no no my kingdom is not of this world my kingdom is a heavenly one my kingdom is from heaven not of this earth. They didn't get it. This was Peter, James, John, the ones who were closest to him. They didn't get it. So Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Incredible promise. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And where I am, there you may be also. So the great hope of the church and that hope means what we confidently expect to happen. We know, persuaded Paul right? totally convinced that Jesus is who he said he was, God, that he is coming back, that we will be with him forever. And in the interim, whatever period of time he gives me, you, on planet earth during these last days, it's our privilege to be God's messenger. That's why the church exists. Jesus said, this is my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against... That was not a defensive statement. It was an offensive statement. He was saying, we are going to go into the world, the church, and we are going to be victorious because Jesus rose from the dead, ascended. He is at the right hand of the Father. He ever lives to make intercession for us, and we've already won. So what we get to do is go out and proclaim the incredible message of the gospel. So when you get to Malachi, and this is why I want to start with that intro, because when you read the book of Malachi, it's pretty tough. On the surface, we talked about this last week, and I want to make sure we re- reiterate it every week as we walk through Malachi. As you just read it on the surface, it's like you're being reamed out for being disobedient. Well, they were. But, but here's what I want you to notice what's the title of the message? This is the hard part. Look at the top of your handout. And it says, What? Do you care? Here's what you're going to see, have seen, and we will see as we walk through this book. God is saying to them, I love you. We spent a lot of time on that last week. I have loved you. I continue to love you. Do you really even care? Do you even care that I love you? Is it important to you to understand? We love to talk about that. We dealt dealt with it last week. We're not going to go back over all, all of that. Do we really care about God's love? That we don't deserve it, but he gives it to us anyway. You notice on your handout, it's filled in there for you, that it's unmerited. That it's unchanging. This is the beauty of this book. One of the emphases throughout it is this. I, God, love you, have loved you, continue to love you, and I will love you despite the fact you don't care. Despite the fact you don't care. You don't respond. I love you anyway. For God so loved the world that He gave. He gave. God is love. He loves us in the midst of our rebellion. He said, Do you care? Is it important? That's why I'm saying it sounds, it sounds so harsh. But one of the things you're going to see is that this God is sharing with them his heart, as a jilted lover, he said, I've loved you. I've done everything you could ever ask for. And you've divorced me. And that, and you've run off to other pagan gods. Why? When I've done so much, it's kind of like Mary and I have been married 40 years. And I turned to her and say, why? I've been so good to you. I was talking to somebody this Well, I think it may have been yesterday. I can't remember. But I was talking to somebody about being married for a long period of time. Well, it did come up yesterday. We had a special birthday party for Fern Hunter. I'm going to ask her to come here. No, she'll kill me. So it, she had a special birthday party for her yesterday. And I was talking to a lady. I was sitting at the table. And you know how it always comes up? And Emily Holly's is Swedish. She introduces me. So this is the pastor of our church. And So, you know, they want to talk about church things. And, and so, and we're talking about Mary and I being 40 years. And the lady at the table goes, ah, that's nothing. I've been married to him 67 years. <laughs> and I said, wow, 67. years. You know, when Mary's uh, uh, dad passed away, they have been married, how long, 78 years? 75? I think it was 78, wasn't it? 78 years. Now, when Mary and I have be been married 78 years, probably not. She'll dump me somewhere along the way. But if, what happens is, in a relationship like that, you learn how special it is that when I was 16 years old, just a born, just brand new Christian, God brought into my life the one person I desperately needed for the rest of my time on earth straight. And we got married three years later. 40 years. She ran, oh, ran it on not don't wear that. I was ironing a shirt yesterday to wear to the birthday party. I I love to iron. That got part of the conversation yesterday. These ladies couldn't believe it. I love to iron. So I'm ironing my shirt, and Mary walks over. Here's what she says. You're not wearing that, are you? I said, yeah, I'm wearing it. What about it? She goes, you're wearing that to preach tomorrow? And I said, no, no, I'm wearing this to Fern's birthday party. She said, "Oh, it's all right. <laughs> so Fern, she didn't wear it. Did, it wasn't good enough for church, but it's good enough for you. I don't know what that means. But what happens in a special relationship like that, You learn security, trust. I was sharing with my class this morning. We've been married 40 years. Mary was six, we got married. And I've never paid a bill. I've never balanced our checkbook. If the Lord takes her home before me, I've had it. I'll have to move in with my daughter and let her do all the work because I can't do it. I've never, I don't even know how much money I make. I can, we could be millionaires, I don't even know it. You know she's hiding money, look at her. It's, it's security, it's trust. It's knowing what that person is thinking before they say it, right? Like, you know, you're sitting in a room, you know when your wife and you've been married 40 years, you know when something ain't right, don't you? And, if, and a husband, what's the one thing you got to say at that point? It doesn't even, you don't have any idea what's going on, but you got to say what? I'm sorry. I don't know what I did, but I guarantee you I did something. I'm sorry. The beauty of our relationship with God and what he wanted them to understand is... As much as I've done for you, proven myself to you trustworthy, why do you not care? Why do you respond the way that you are? Because I want you to come back into that very special relationship. So we asked him, we looked at last week, do you care about my love? And then the second thing we looked at last week is do you care about my honor? Is it important to you to honor my name, to be genuine in your reverence of me, to be genuine in what you bring to me, your offerings? Do you give me yourself? I love Romans 12:1. Paul writes after this incredible treatise about salvation, and the great Dr. Martin Luther called it the the Constitution of Our Faith. And you Romans 1 through 11, and you get to chapter 12, verse 1, and he begins it this way: All right, after all of that, Paul writes, "I beg you, brethren, I beg you, by the mercies of God, present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship." What he's saying is, in light of this incredible salvation that was my reasonable response Paul said to give your whole self back to him as a sacrifice alive in worship of him he said that's reasonable that's what god is saying do you really care about giving me yourself do you bring me the trash or do you bring me yourself heart your whole being all right let's go to malachi chapter 1 verse 9.3 today. Point 3 on your handout. God said do you care about my favor my grace Here's the one principle you better never forget as a Christian. As I say all the time, if you forget everything else I say today, grasp this. Grace is the best thing that's ever been in the universe. Grace is giving you something you don't deserve. For example, God gave me Mary. I didn't deserve that, but he did. But far beyond that, what did God give me? He gave me eternal life, and I do not deserve it. The only being that's ever walked planet Earth that deserves eternal life, Jesus Christ. He died so that we might have it. God said, does that that register with you? Do you even care about it? Look at verse 9. Look what he says after what we've been talking about. Look at chapter 1, verse 9 of Malachi. First word is but. My favorite word in the Bible. He said, after all of this, but now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. You see that? I want you to notice particularly verse 9, because here's what he's saying in verse 9. Do you care about my grace? I am the Lord of hosts. We talked at great length about the Lord of hosts last week, so I'm not going to go back over that, but just just make one point about it. I'm the Lord of hosts. What that meant was I am the invincible one. I have a multitude of angels available at my beck and call to do whatever I want done. I cannot lose. I am the invincible one, and I am your God. I am your heavenly father. I am your spiritual husband. We're going to get into that great length next week. And this is who I am. This is all that I've done for you. When you didn't deserve any of it, I did it anyway. And you reject my grace. Notice verse 9. But now entreat God's favor or his grace that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. The little word this. So that phrase, while this is being done by your hands, refers back to what we talked about last week. So let's look at verse 6. Just read this. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I then am the father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? Now notice verse 7. You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. You've held your sacrificing for God in contempt. And when you offer the blind animals as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame animals and the sick animals, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. talked about this last week. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Now verse 9, but now entreat God's favor. Here's the point. God said, you bring to me animals that are blind, that are lame, that are crippled, that are stolen. We dealt with all that last week. He says, you know that it's wrong. You know it's not what I want. You know that I've said I will not accept that. And yet, now verse 9, but yet you want my grace. You see that? You see it? He says, you don't, I've done all of this for you, and you refuse to do it my way, and yet here's what you say, God, please bless me anyway. Do we ever act like that toward God? You've given me everything, Lord. Now, I'm going to give you what I got left over. I just accept that and bless. And I'm not talking about money. That's part of it. I'm talking about your life, your time, your heart, your service, your testimony for Jesus Christ. We just rock. Here's the attitude a lot of people have I'm born again. I'm just going to rock along through life, die one day, and go to heaven. I appreciate that, God. And if I need you in the interim, I'll let you know. What does God say? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, with your bodies a living sacrifice. One preacher said the problem with the living sacrifice is crawling off the altar. That's what's going on here. God is saying, you want my grace. Verse 9 is an irony. He's saying the irony of this whole situation. You want to bring me trash and then ask me to say, well, thank you. Thank you. God says, look at the next next point he makes in verse 10. Who is there among you who would shut the door so that you will not kindle fire on my altar in vain, meaningless? I have no pleasure in you. Will I accept an offering from your hands? You bring me stuff that's fake, insincere, blemished. And you ask me to accept that? No, I don't have any pleasure in that. I really want you to notice verse 10, the first phrase. I would rather you do what? Everybody see that? Are you with me? I would rather you do what? Shut the doors. Please, do you see that? Not if you see it. You understand what he's saying to them? I'd rather you go down to the temple and do what? Close it up. Close it up. I'd rather you go down to the temple and close it up and stop bringing me this trash. I am God. I'm not accepting trash. Now, how does that apply to us today? How many churches exist this morning? People are standing up preaching in the name of God and mocking who God is by what they preach. What would God say to that church? I'd rather you shut the door than lie about me or mock me or not preach my truth. What does truth do? It sets you free. The opposite of truth keeps you in bondage. God's saying, I've set you free. Please don't bring me trash. Bring me your whole being. Isaiah chapter 1, God through the prophet Isaiah says these words to his children. When you come to appear before me... Who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Here's what he's saying to them. All the things that I have established for you to do to come before me to worship me. What's happened is you're mocking those and I'd rather you not do it anymore. Don't bring me the incense that I told you to burn if you're not going to be sincere. Don't come celebrate new moons. Don't celebrate the Sabbath. Don't come before me and the author at the temple. Don't do all the things I told you to do if you're not going to do them sincerely. How would that apply to the church today? God says, I want you to be real. What's our acronym for the year? Be real. Be real. No game, be honest, be sincere. Not fake, no crack, no hypocrisy, be real. Don't come to me and pretend to be one thing and then be something else in front of other. Be real, be genuine. You're born again, you're a child of God, then live like it. You're not perfect. God never expects you to be perfect, but he expects you to be real. In Revelation chapter three, he put it this way. Jesus did. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. These are pretty strong words. In other words, what does Jesus want? He already knows your heart, doesn't he? He wants you to be hot toward him. Cold, he understands. Cold is I don't want anything to do with you, God. Lukewarm is playing a game. He says, I don't want that. I'd rather you be, I want you hot. I'd rather you be cold. Be honest. If you're not not interested in me, then be honest. Be real. Because if you drink lukewarm water, what's your first response? Disgusting. You spit it out. Exactly what Jesus, I don't want lukewarm Because, God said, are you not concerned about my favor? I extend a hand of grace to you, and your response is, thank you, and if I need you, I'll let you know. You see, God saved me in 1907. Why? so I could be cool the rest of my time on the planet. I know that I am, but that's just the way it is. It's a curse. Why did he save me in 1970? Because he has something for me to do, right? Until he takes me home. I don't know when that will be. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be 20 years from now. At some point, I'm going to die and go home. But in the interim, from 1970, April 19th, 1970, to this point in time, he saved me to do what? Go into all the world and make disciples. Go into all the world. He's given me a position of leadership in a church, and I we're going to talk about that next week, how he gets on leaders. That's how I got into this. Very person, he says, leaders in this book. How serious he is about it. But he's also saved me. I sold greeting cards. For seven, and, I'm a college, and, I, and I'm a human being. I'm not just a pastor. I'm a human being. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a friend. But in every relationship and in every place I find myself, God says your mindset needs to be disciple people. Disciple. People. Share your faith. Live your faith. Be real. Don't be lukewarm. Be honest. Be who you are. Next point, number four, verse 11. He said, do you care about my name? Do you care about my name? Notice the context from verse 10. He says, I take no pleasure in what you're doing. You're fake and you're just going through the motions and I'm not pleased with that. Now, verse 11. From the rising of the sun to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. Don't miss that statement. We'll come back to it. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering unlike what they were giving. Fake, lame, sick, Offerings that God didn't want, he said, they're going to be pure, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But, there's that word again, you Israel, Judah, you profane it, my name, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, its fruit, its food, it's contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering, should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord. But cursed be the deceiver who has a flock, who has in his flock a male, and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. He says it three different ways. Notice on the screen. Great among the nations, great among the Gentiles, great king. He's writing to Jews, and he's saying to them, I called you out, the book begins by God saying, I called you, Jacob, I did not call Esau, I called Jacob and Jacob's descendants, now the Jews. I called you and I've loved you to go into the world and make my name great and you have profaned it. How many of you have ever shared your faith with someone, you're witnessing, you're talking about your Lord, you're trying to share about who Jesus is, and the response of the person you're talking to is, well, I know so-and-so, they're a Christian and blank. Ever had that happen to you? Now, none of us are perfect, and we're all going to make mistakes. That's not the issue. The issue is, who are you? you, What's your character? We're going to talk about this next week. Your integrity, your name. God says, I gave you the name, my child, and I wanted you to go into the world and make my name great. And all you did was go into the world and muddy it up. I'm going to be great among the Gentiles. You notice he didn't say, I want to be. What did he say? I'm going to be. I'm going to be great among the nations. That's the same thing. Gentiles, nations, the exact same thing. I'm going to be a great king. I'm going to be feared. What he's saying to them is, I am going to be these things. Now, are you in or out? Because when he talked to Moses, what did he tell Moses his name was? I am. Whether you like it or not, he is. And he was saying to them, I've called you out. I loved you. I have loved you. I will continue to love you. But if you're not going to make my name great, I'll find somebody else who will. What does he say to us today? I love you. I called you out. I saved you. And I'm going to be a great God. Now, if you don't want to do it, I'll find somebody else. Because God's always had a remnant of faithful people. He always will. Called the church. And we get to make a decision. Am I going to be part of that? Not just somebody that's saved. But am I going to be on the forefront? Am I going to be used by God? Or do I want to be called Christian? Do I want people to know who I am? Am I excited about sharing my faith? Do you care about the name of God? The whole world is going to know about me. I want you to be my tool, your choice. And notice verse 12. because It's an interest, interesting. Their response has been this. We talked about this being a series of questions. God will say something to them, and then their question is, what are you talking about? Look at verse 12. You profane it and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. Now, please catch these two points. You defile the Lord's table by making it contemptible. In other words, bringing stuff to God to sacrifice that he doesn't want. Where's your heart? Is it centered on God or is it about me? This is what I want. Or God, here I am, use me. But I really want you to notice the second thing, verse 13. You also say, what a weariness. Man, it's so important. The Hebrew here means you consider it a burden. Please look up here for how many people, how many people. And I pray to God, you're not one of them. You consider it a burden having to do. It's honor, the a privilege to serve God. It's a high calling. It's a responsibility, a privilege. That's why what you need to find in the midst of your church, you need to find your place of service. You enjoy what you do. Sometimes you just do things because they need to be done without complaining, without grumbling, without murmuring. I just want to help. It's not about me, it's about others. So many people consider it a burden. You've heard me talk about my sweet aunt and some other people that I know, and I won't. She's listening now on the internet, so i got to be careful about my sweet aunt. She's nine, how old is Miss? 93? 93, and she started listening to my sermon on the internet. And, and then listening to her over the years talk about her church, some other people, yeah, I got to go down there. Nobody else will guess I got to. God said, and I'm not talking about just what you I'm talking about, let's say you've got a neighbor that's really hurting. You consider it a privilege to go over and help that neighbor and share the love of Christ. Yeah, I just got to do it. They'll think bad about me. Why do we pray for people? Why do we put a meal together and take it as we want to? But more, but more serious than that is do you look at your life every day and say, what can I, how can I benefit somebody How can I share my faith a loving way or just extend a, a hand of grace to someone to reach out? How can I do that? How can I let them see that I don't talk about Jesus, I really love him, and I want them to know who he is, not who they are. How can I do that? Most of our relationships, unfortunately, tend to be what can I get, not what can I get. And it should never be that way for a Christian. Now, we have jobs to do and responsibilities. That's, I'm not talking about your word. I'm talking about interacting at, in the community and all that we do. Is it a burden or do we do it this, uh, look at verse 13 one more time. I want to show you one more thing in Hebrew, then we're going to wrap this up. You also say, what a weariness, and you sneer at it. This is an absolutely incredible metaphor in Hebrew. The phrase, you sneer at it, in Hebrew, is the picture of a cow blowing out through his nose something that he doesn't want it. Great picture, isn't it? Like he takes it in, he goes, you ever seen a cow just kind of, well, if you could watch me blow my nose big as mine is it. It's the cow, but then it just blows it all out because he didn't want to ingest it. That's what that word means in Hebrew, that you look at serving God like, I blow it up. I don't want to do that. That's the metaphor in Hebrew. But he says, I look at verse 11, that phrase from the rising of the sun to the going down of the sun. In Hebrew, it's used throughout the Old Testament. That is a metaphor, meaning the whole earth. In Isaiah 45, 6, it says that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Do you understand that is why we are on the planet? It's to say to the world, there's one God, there is no other. And he wants everybody to know, I will be great. You have a choice. Now, verse 14, cursed be the deceiver a deceiver. You take a vow and, and vow means we're going to see a lot about vows next week. Vow is a solemn promise. When Mary and I got married on August 24th, 1973, we exchanged marriage, what? Vows. And in, it's a word right out of the Bible and it means a solemn promise that I promise to do this even if you what? Don't do what you're supposed to do. Because here's what God is saying to them. He said, should I accept this? Because I, God, have lived up to my end of the bargain every step of the way, and you keep not fulfilling your vow. Here's the point of the book of Malachi. He said, I've loved you. I've kept my promise over and over and over again, and you have not. You keep mocking, you keep turning your back, profaning my name, and I keep showing you grace. I keep showing you mercy. I keep fulfilling my vow because I love you. Dude, why don't you care? Why don't you care when I constantly am showing you grace and mercy? One last verse I want you to see. I'll just read it to you. It's from Psalm 50. Psalm 50. You will, this will be familiar to you. God says, I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. How many of you ever heard that phrase? And we always use it like God has a cattle on a thousand hills. We can get whatever we want. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. You know what he's saying to them? What he wants them to understand here is, I own everything. I don't need your lame animals, your blind animals, your sick animals. I own all the animals. I made them. I'm doing, I gave you this system so you could give me your heart and you've made a game out of it. Why did Jesus go into the temple and throw out the money changers? Why? Because they were taking something God had meant for the heart and they were making a profit out of it. That's the only. What do you think God thinks of preachers today that stand up just to make money by lying to people and saying, if you'll give this much, you can get this much. Give me a hundred, I guarantee God will give you a thousand. I do not want to be that dude when he stands before Jesus one day. Because God is saying, I own it all. It's not about the animals. It's not about the Sabbath. It's not about the incense. It's not about the sacrifice. It's about you saying, here, Lord, take me. When God saved you, what he wanted in return was, Lord, I am yours. Do with me as you will. Here's why. He will never mistreat you, will he? He'll never let you down. And all he'll do is bless you spiritually, take care of you, provide for you, give you peace, happiness, and hope. That'd be a pretty good life, wouldn't it? That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means. He said, Lord, here I am. Take me. Years ago, there was a young man who was given, as a kid, he'd been given a famous diamond. One of the most spectacular diamonds in the world. It's called the Koynar diamond. It was given to Queen Victoria as a gift by a young boy. He gave it to Queen Victoria. Later, he's a grown man. He visits the queen, and he asks if they would go to the Tower of London and bring the diamond so he could see it that he had given to her years ago. So they get it, they bring it to him, to Buckingham Palace. He takes the diamond, holds it in his hand. Remember, as a young boy, he had given it to Queen Victoria. He takes the diamond now, it's in his hand, and he kneels before the queen. And he says this, Your Majesty, I gave this jewel when I was a child, too young to know what I was doing. I want to give it to you again in the fullness of my strength, with all my heart and affection and gratitude, now and forever, fully realizing all that I do. At some point in your life, Jesus saved you. But what he wants from you every day is to wake up and say, Lord, thank you. I want to give to myself for this day fully. Knowing what I do, I want to see you work my life. Use me in the lives of other people. Every day, Lord, here I am. Because you're going to have tough days, are you not? Sure you will. We could go around this room just this week. You could share some of the, the tough things that have gone on in your life. God never promised you it wouldn't be tough. As a matter of fact, he promised it would be tough. But what he said was, I want to use tough day, the good day, the mediocre day, the day. I want to use every day as an opportunity to say to Gentiles, say to the pagans, say to the people out there, I am God, it's no other. He wants to do that through us. His question is, it's a privilege. Would you bow your heads, please?